this is part of a series, Brian introduced it last week, on the future. He did a you know, brief introduction where we're going. This is intended to be a nine-week series total. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it ends up being extended a few weeks because this is a big topic, and it's a complicated topic. I've been asked to lay, kind of lay the groundwork for what's coming for the, for the rest of this. Uh, most of this, this uh, series will be based out of Matthew 24. So if you have a Bible, you might as well just turn to Matthew 24. We're going to be spending some time there in a little while. Now, to make sure that everybody's on the same page, so to speak, you know, not everybody knows about the end times, about what the Bible teaches about the end times. So I'm not gonna, I don't want to assume anything. So I'm going to start at the bottom. We're just going to walk up so everybody's on the same page. Now, there's a lot of material here. So we're going to have to cover this. You know, I'm going to be moving pretty fast. And I probably will go a little bit long this morning compared to how long I usually go. So what time is it? Is it 10.20, 10.30, something? Okay. Okay. Just before Jesus died, he pronounced judgment on Jerusalem and on the temple. And his disciples said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming, that's two, and the end of the age, that's three. And their questions then are our questions now. Some of what was future then is now past for us, but we still look forward to certain things to happen. When, when will these things happen? What will be the signs of your return? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So if you bring up the first, um, the first um, slide... Now, before we start, I'm, I'm, going to give you a, I'm going to give you a disclaimer, okay? What I'm going to do is lower your expectations. I am not a student of prophecy. There are people that man, just like dial down on that. That's not me. I haven't read a bunch of books on biblical prophecy. I didn't take any classes on biblical prophecy in Bible college or seminary. I don't watch Bible prophecy teachers on TV. I've never attended a prophecy conference. I don't spend any time on the internet looking at all these different internet sites about prophecy. So my approach is more looking at scripture and looking at it theologically. So if you're hoping for a detailed outline of the end time events, Brian will give that to you later. Let's look at number one, eschatology, big word. It comes from two Greek words, eschatos, meaning last or end, and ology, and ology on the end of anything, biology, zoology, anything like that means study of, discourse on, doctrine of, something in that range. So you put those two together, and this is a branch of Christian theology called eschatology, the study of last things. Okay, number two. The major elements of Christian eschatology, and it's Christian eschatology because there are other eschatologies. Hinduism has an eschatology. 
Islam has an eschatology. They have an understanding of things to come. You know, things are going to be in the future. So the major elements of Christian eschatology are there on the left under agreement. You get hardly anybody that, that, um, that rejects any of this individual death. Our individual death triggers a series of events that are part of the end. So your death, my death, even if it's 100 years before Jesus' return, is still part of eschatology. It's sometimes called personal eschatology. Jesus' return, that's the big one. Everybody's looking for judgments in the end. The eternal state. You're going to be somewhere eternally. The resurrection of the dead. And the believer's presence with Jesus forever. Those things are really not contested within Christian theology. Now on the right hand column is where everybody wants the answers. <laughs> Who's the Antichrist? You think... So the rapture, and again, I'm not going to assume that people know things. The rapture is the doctrine or the belief by some people that God is going to remove his people from the earth before the tribulation, which is the next item and is also a period of unprecedented suffering and God's judgment poured out on the earth. So the idea is when God's going to really judge the earth, he's going to take his people out. That's the idea. Not everybody believes that. Now, how many of you would like that to be true? Yeah. It's very, very popular. That doesn't mean it's right. Okay, I'm just telling you. I'm, just, I'm not taking sides here. I'm just telling you. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's true. And nobody in their right mind wants to be around for the tribulation. The millennium. That's the belief that there is a thousand-year period. That's what millennium means. Thousand-year period sometime in the future associated with Christ's return. Some people think Jesus comes before the millennium and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. Some people think, no, Jesus comes at the end of the thousand years after the church has conquered, basically conquered the world and established righteousness. Then Jesus comes back to claim the kingdom. And there are, some people say there is no millennium. The Antichrist this man of evil, there have been many antichrists. There's a spirit of antichrist, this resistance against God's man and God's plan. But there will come the antichrist. That's the belief. Battle of Armageddon, this huge battle that will signal the end of all things on the plain of Megiddo in Israel. That's where the term Megiddo comes from. And there's some other things that could go on that list. That could be a pretty long list. So those are the basic elements. When people think about end times, that's pretty much the, what they're dealing with right there. All right, now let's look at the next slide. To further complicate things, there are a number of different ways people try to interpret prophetic scriptures. Now, prophetic scriptures appear in the Old Testament. Various places in the New Testament, they're scattered. They're not all together in one place, which is why we have all these uh, disagreements and speculation because there's no place where everything's laid out nicely. Again, you'll have to ask Brian about that. <laughs> but the four main ways of looking at it is preterist, which is almost everything we look at as prophetic, including the book of Re Revelation, ha has already happened. It was future at the time that the prophecies were given, but it's past now. That's one way of looking at it. 
the historicist, that there is an ongoing unfolding of these events. There will be many tribulations. There will be antichrists that will rise, but there will come the tribulation, the antichrist, and that will wrap everything up. Futurist, and that's where most people fall in our culture, that most of these prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. We're looking forward to the second coming. We're looking forward to the judgment. We're looking forward to the tribulation, to the Antichrist. Those are all still future for us. And the fourth is the idealist view, which is everything's symbolic. Everything is spiritualized. In a sense, they're not even really prophecy. Like the Antichrist would represent all the evil that men do down through the ages. You know, that's a symbolic basically strips it of any predictive power at all. So if you take all those together and you look at all the different varieties there could be there, there's a tendency to go, how can we say we know anything? Is there anything we can hang on to here? If you've got that many different ways of interpreting, you've got this many things that are disagreed upon, what? What, what can we do with this? The left-hand column is where you want to focus the agreement can you put that slide back up the second slide there's where you want to focus that's the big picture stuff the right hand column are the details the order of things so we're going to focus there on the agreement now I, I think of it as puzzle pieces Jigsaw puzzle. How many of you have ever done a jigsaw puzzle? Okay. What do, when you're trying to do a jigsaw puzzle, what do you always want propped up right where you can see it? The lid. <laughs> because that's the picture that you're trying to create. What we have is a bunch of jigsaw puzzle pieces scattered through the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're not in all one place, and we don't have a box lid to look at. We have a rough idea what this picture is supposed to look like. Maybe we've got some of the outline pieces. Some of the pieces are missing. So it gives a lot of room for speculation. That's why these vastly different models came up about how to interpret this because there's a lot of elbow room there. So again, focus on where the agreement is. Focus on what we know and what we can count on. Now the most common version is what's commonly known as the pre-trib, pre-mill rapture. Jesus takes his people out. Then you have the tribulation. Then Jesus returns. Then you have the millennium. So Jesus, the pre-tribulation rapture, pre-millennial return of Jesus. That's the most popular view in our culture in this day and age, but it hasn't always been that way, and you need to know that. That's not the only game out there, and you can make a really good case for um, a different order there. So, enough of the preliminaries. Let's look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is the last of the five great teaching sections in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is kind of built around these five big blocks. The first one is Matthew 5, 6, and 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last one. It's delivered on the Mount of Olives. 
And whereas the Sermon on the Mount was delivered to a vast crowd, this one is to his closest disciples only. He's sitting with a small group of people, and they come to him. So this is called, because it's on the Mount of Olives, this is usually known as the Olivet Discourse. For those who are interested, parallel passages on this are Mark 13 and Luke 21, and I would recommend that you sit down and compare those because there's some slight differences there. Uh, there's a little bit more information to kind of fill things out. The Olivet Discourse is hard to, hard to understand because it seems like everything's um, kind of interrelated. And you're, you can kind of see there's two different time frames there, but you can't tell where do you separate them and how do they relate to each other. You need to understand the Olivet Discourse only takes 11 minutes to read. You can read everything Jesus says out loud at a slow pace in 11 minutes. I did it. So Jesus was used to teaching for hours, days. So his disciples come to him and say, He's already he's talked about the destruction of the temple. And they, they come to him and say, when is this going to happen? When are you going to be returning? What is the sign of the end of the age? These are huge questions, huge questions. I don't think he only gave them 11 minutes of his best material. Right? Which means we don't have everything Jesus said about this topic at that time. And there's where some of the confusion comes in. Some of the pieces that would have connected, that would have made it obvious, aren't there. It would have been, it would have been like as, half as long as the New Testament, probably, if it was all, all written out. Also, what we have is what was remembered by the disciples several decades later. So only the high points are going to stick out. So you put those two together, and that's why you end up, uh, this is my belief, this is why you end up with the Olivet Discourse being hard to figure out. Where do you sort out what's immediate future about Israel and the temple and what's way in the future? Because it seems like it kind of goes back and forth. So that's where we're going. So if someone, uh, someone, slide number four. Anybody back there, I don't care. This is the end. This is the end of chapter 23. And those of you who have ever taken a class from me or something know I'm all about context. It's all about context. The context of Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, is a series of conflicts and condemnations that Jesus gives right after the triumphal entry. These are the this is all going on the last couple days of his life. He knows what's going to go down very shortly. So the end of 23... Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. The implication is the prophets sent from God. And those you said, you rejected everything God does. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. He's referring to the temple. He's standing within sight. He's standing on the temple mount. And he points at the temple, and he's saying this to the, the leaders, and he says, Behold your house. Behold God's house. Rejected, abandoned by God. Fine, you can have the building. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again 
Notice the implication coming again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's an Old Testament reference to the Messiah, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, and you said, you will not see me again until you will recognize who I am. I am he that is coming in the name of the Lord. I am the Messiah. And he walks out. He makes that pronouncement and just like, now we have 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away. So he's walking through the, the, temp, the actual temple area across the temple platform. The temple platform was about 35 acres. It wasn't just the temple. It was a temple complex. There were multiple buildings there. It was spectacular. Herod the Great, who, who was the chief builder of this, just before and during Jesus, well, just before Jesus' life, he may have been a scoundrel. He may have been a paranoid nutcase. Actually, he was a paranoid nutcase at the end of his life, but the guy knew how to build. And the temple was staggeringly opulent and, and impressive, towering, huge buildings. The, there's descriptions of the marble on the sides of the buildings all figured, and so it looked like ocean waves. So, everything. so picture this glittering jewel, this temple mount. It was one-seventh the size of Jerusalem. And it was sitting on a hill above Jerusalem, so it dominated physically, size-wise, but also visually. Everything was dominated by the temple. They were very proud of it, as you would expect. It was the focus of their country. It was the focus of their religion. And Jesus goes, God's not here. So he's walking out, and his, his disciples, who are from Galilee... Up in the north, country guys, they're in the big city here. And they're going around like, wow, look at them, their buildings. So they point and say to Jesus, well, can you believe these buildings? And Jesus looks around, and they're dwarfed. You've got to realize, they would be dwarfed like little dots by these huge buildings and how big this thing is. And Jesus looks around, and he says, you see all this? Not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of these will be thrown down. It had taken 40 years to build the temple to the, to the condition it was in. It would be under construction for another 30 years before it was completed. It was mostly completed at this point. Gigantic scale. There were, there were blocks of stone in there that were 24 feet long. Huge stuff. And to think of them just being leveled. So they leave. They, leave, they probably went out the east gate. And then you go down a little valley and you go up the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is taller than the Temple Mount. And there's several places on the, on the Mount of Olives where you can just sit there and you're looking slightly down into the Temple area and Jerusalem around it. And Jesus is sitting there looking at this after having pronounced judgment. And the disciples come to him and say, and I think it was just like, when is this going to happen? They're like, he's serious. He means literally, this is going, that is going to be leveled. The jewel of, is, or the jewel of uh, Israel's religion and nation and the city is going to be leveled. How is that even possible? So that's the context of, what, of the Olivet Discourse. Before this, Jesus had 
cursed a fig tree. A couple chapters before, but this is just after the triumphal entry. So he has presented himself to Israel as their king, fulfilling prophecy, riding in on a donkey, riding into the temple courts, fulfilling prophecy, and he was rejected. And he knew he was going to be killed in a matter of days, so he knew where this was all going. Shortly after that, he sees a fig tree one day, and he walks over to it, and it says, and it's not the season for figs. You're like, okay, what's the deal? And he looks at the tree, and he says, may no one eat fruit from you again. Well, the fruit tree or a fig tree was used in the Old Testament as a symbol for Israel, and that it was supposed to, it was supposed to produce fruit. And the disciples would have known exactly what that meant. This is a symbolic judgment. Now, the, the Gospels vary slightly. One of them says the fig tree withered up immediately, and another one says they walked by the next day and it was withered up. When a plant withers, withers up from the roots up, what does that mean? It's dead. That's what's going to happen to Israel. That's a symbol of the nation. There's one catastrophic judgment foretold. He tells, shortly after, he tells a parable about a king who throws a wedding feast for his son and invites people to come, and they just blow it off. And it says, and he, the king was angry, and he sent his troops out to destroy them. Who's the king in that parable? God. Who's the son? The wedding banquet. Jesus. Who is not going to cooperate with God's plan and rejects it? the Jewish leaders, and he sends his armies out to destroy them. And this happens over and over and over again, leading up to the Olivet Discourse. It's judgment, 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 judgment. Right here at the end of 23, before the section we just looked at, he's talking to the religious leaders. You snakes! That's a crowd pleaser. There's been a whole series of woe to you Pharisees and teachers of the law. Woe, and he just stacks it up, stacks it up, stacks it up. And this is the last one. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, listen to this, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. He's claiming to be God. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue. Hunt them down from town to town. Listen to this judgment. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, which is Cain and Abel, until Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. All the innocent blood, basically that's the entire human history. He said, all the innocent blood ever shed, you're going to be held accountable for because you're about to kill the ultimate innocent man. The guilt of all of that is going, and the punishment is going to fall on you. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. That's the setup for the for the um, all of that discourse. So the j disciples had heard all this. They'd heard the parables. They'd heard this. They'd heard him denouncing the Pharisees about the temple being leveled, and they come to him. I think it was like in almost whispers, like, "When is this going to happen?" And they're looking at the temple. Maybe it's glittering in the sun. You know, stuff's covered in gold and stuff. Repeated. Judgment, judgment, judgment. That's the context of the Olivet Discourse. That's the primary context. 
But what you see as you study it is that there's two time frames there. One is the near future, what's going to happen to this generation. And that's the destruction of the temple. And it's in the center of the city. If the temple goes, probably the entire, the entire city is going to go. These repeated judgments on the leaders, on this entire country. But in Jesus' words at the end of Matthew 23, imply a passage of time. You will not see me again until certain things happen. So there's an immediate context, historical frame here, time frame, and then there's one that's in the future. The destruction of Jerusalem took place pretty much the way Jesus said it would take place in 71 AD after a three or four year siege by the Romans, and they literally leveled the temple till there was not one, literally not one stone left on another. And there were people that were alive when Jesus said this that saw that. So the, the uh, disciples, another way you look, there's a near future and a far future. The disciples, their questions, when will these things be? That's one. And when will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They're not linking those tightly, but they are linking Jesus' return and the end of the age. So there's, again, there's an evidence that there's a passage of time involved here. Look, at uh, those of you who are following Jesus, um, I forget what... Um, Jesus, 20, let's see, 24-14. So this is the early part of the Olivet Discourse. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate many. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now listen to this. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end comes. Has that happened yet? See, so many of the things that we're looking for, we're asking, you know, what, what are the signs of the time? You know, is, is um, Saddam Hussein the Antichrist? Is, you know, people thought Hitler might be the Antichrist. People thought the Ottoman Empire might have been like Gog and Magog, trying to fit the pieces together. What are the signs of the times we're looking for? What are we waiting for? See, a lot of the signs we're looking for are very uncertain. Jesus says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. That's human history. There's probably over a dozen, there might be 20 armed conflicts going on in the world right now. That's the normal state of affairs. So if you're looking for an uptick in wars, <laughs> what would that look like? We had four wars this year, but last year we only had three, so probably that means something. Yeah, that's, that's not good enough. Consider that the two most devastating wars in human history, World War I and World War II, were fought about 20 years apart. People probably thought, boy, if there was ever a wars and rumor of wars, here it is, Jesus is right around the corner. And yet, here we are. Unsure. What, is it, what exactly does that mean? Earthquakes. You see it on the weather channel. Oh, you have a, you know, record number of earthquakes. Hurricanes. Record number of hurricanes. You know, it's like, oh, maybe that means something. Pandemics. We're right in the middle of one. Pretty minor by, by uh, world-class scale. The bubonic plague 
in the uh, 1300s had a mortality rate, if I remember, I have about 30%. No, excuse me, here it is. 30 to 75% mortality rate. Not transmission rate, mortality rate. Killed a third to a half of the population of Europe in a matter of years. This went on for years, and it would crop up periodically. There was an outbreak in China in the 1800s. Somebody was, di somebody was diagnosed with bubonic plague like earlier this year. It's still around. If that's not a bad enough plague, <laughs> what are we worried about COVID for? This is a walk in the park <laughs> compared to the Black Death. So we feel stirred up and unsettled by these things. Maybe this means something. Maybe this means something. Well, it's unsure. But here, what I just pointed out, here's something that we can actually quantify. Has the gospel been proclaimed? The message of the kingdom of God, Jesus the Savior, has that message been proclaimed to every tribe and nation and tongue? Not every person. Every tribe, nation, and tongue on the earth. The answer is no. And he says right there, this will happen and then the end will come. So what do we want to focus on? Um, what's slide number five? That's not five. That's not five. That's not five. Oh, okay. I don't know. So this is a prerequisite to Jesus' return. I need to realize it doesn't mean it's a trigger. What, John, what Brian said, you know, you hand out the last, God, you know, the four spiritual laws to somebody, and then Jesus immediately returns because that's what he was waiting for. No, this is more of like a prerequisite. It will not happen before this event. It's going to happen sometime after. There are other signs we need to look for. So Jesus' return, close? How close? According to this, how close? Is it close enough to max out your credit cards? No. At least I don't think so. In 2010, there was, it's held every 10 years, there's a major missions conference, I think it's in Lausanne, Switzerland. During the 2010, there were about 100 tables set up, missions organizations from all over the world, and at table number 71, there was a group of guys that started brainstorming. And they said, how close are we? How do we even determine that? How many unreached people groups are there in the world? And that set people to start examining that. That set a whole movement into order, and you can look up table 71 on the internet, and you'll find some really interesting stuff about the Great Commission. What's being done in different places around the world? Another really interesting one is, um, um, is it completing the task? Finishing the task. Finishing the task. This set in motion people studying unreached people groups and planning. The people that were there said it was like an auction. They said, hey, there's an unreached people group over so-and-so. And somebody goes, yeah, we'll take those. We already got people in the next country. We'll take those. And they just started divvying it up. If I read their, I got on their website, if I read this right, they think it might be completed by 2025. Another one said maybe 2030. You know, you got 
there's an instability and stuff. It's within reach. It's like, it's like right in terms of all of human history, that's like right next, it's like right here. So they got organized, they identified it all, and now they're systematically divvying it up. Who's going to reach them? Who's going to reach them? Who's going to reach them? How are we going to reach them? We need to get things translated into their languages. All that. It's all organized, and it's all narrowing. The group just gets smaller, 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 smaller. It's within reach. Hopefully this morning helped create some understanding of Christian eschatology. That was the point. Let's try to give you a foundation because... Brian's going to be touching on a lot of other aspects of it over the next two months. And we're going to continue looking at the Bible. We're looking at the future. But now it comes down to personal. What should we be doing? How do we live? How do we live with this almost but not yet? How do we live in anticipation that Jesus might return even though he hasn't come back for 2,000 years? People have been waiting for 2,000 years. We may very well be the generation that sees it. No, no proof on that, just are you living like that? The rest of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 is all about the importance of living in expectation. Some very, very famous, some of Jesus' best-known parables are in that thing, the, the, five, the, the foolish virgins. They're not prepared for the bridegroom to come. That's in Matthew 25. That's part of the Olivet Discourse. That's the context. Jesus is coming again. Sure deal. It's just a question of when. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus returned tomorrow, would that be a good thing for you or a bad thing for you? Would you look at it and go, boy, I'd just like, like another day or two, another week or two, another year or two or three. That's sobering. We don't know that God counts people groups the way we're counting people groups. We're giving it our best shot. We don't know. We don't know. Jesus is coming soon. If that were tomorrow, what would you think about that? Let's put a little slightly longer time frame on it. What if you knew, and maybe Brian will tell you, when Jesus is actually going to return? I know, but I'm not allowed to tell anybody. Yep, if you can't, don't even, don't try to get it out of me. <laughs> what if Jesus was going to come a year from now? What changes would you make in your life? What condition would you want your life to be in when Jesus, you stand before Jesus and he goes, so, were you doing what I told you to do? I mean, this is the boss showing up on the job. The boss goes away on, a, on a, a materials run, and what happens with all the workers? Some of them keep working, some of them don't. What happens when the boss comes back? <laughs> yeah, some people get fired probably. Read the rest of 24 and 25, that's what happens. If you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. 
He uses that image of a servant being given an assignment and not having done it when the master returns. It's not a pretty picture. That's us. That's us. That's you. That's me. Think. If Jesus came back, you knew one year from now Jesus was going to return, what would you change in your life? What would you, what would you give up? From the negative side, what would you give up? And what would you add? So those issues are going to keep coming up over the next two months as we go through this. How does this affect us? What are you doing to prepare for when Jesus comes again? So the worship team can come up.